Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. Donald Trump is currently sulking in Mar-a-Lago following his record-breaking second impeachment trial, but historians are just getting started on the Trump era. My guest today has gone back to the beginning. He's directed a documentary about the 2016 election campaign, exploring, with the benefit of hindsight, why Trump was able to defeat Hillary Clinton and what his shock victory revealed about America. Jay Fletcher, thanks for joining me. Good morning. Um, So what did you find out, or want to find out, that you didn't already know about this election? I don't know that I've massively found out anything brand new. There's no great reveal in our film. But what I think we did do was assemble this insane conflagration of events, uh, a perfect storm, cliche phrase that everyone uses, but that's exactly what happened. Um, The Republicans slept, walked into the 2016 election, and a complacent Hillary Clinton thought it was in the bag. And most people spent most of their time laughing at Donald Trump instead of viewing him as a threat, which, of course, gave him a much easier run at the eventual race for the presidency. Well, Kellyanne Conway, one of your interviewees, um, insists that he did always want to win, which is contrary to um, to quite a lot of the reporting at the time. And, you know, she was saying he wasn't just running to boost his brand, but she is, shall we say, famously um, unreliable. Do you believe her, or, is, or do you even think that that it's that it's possible to sort of give a binary answer? Yes, he really did. No, he really didn't. Or well, you know, I mean, the, honestly, the the the, 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 pres- the film is called the Accidental President, and the accident that I'm pointing at is that you know is literally a publicity stunt that got out of hand. I mean, there are no indicators that in June 15 he was serious about winning the presidency. I mean, he didn't have a serious campaign office. There was no polling done on his behalf all the operations that would normally go with a serious campaign were absolutely absent. This was a freestyle open mic campaign Mm. (laughs) seeing where it went and what happened next. And, you know, it's, it's been joked many times, but if you hired the best campaign team in the world and followed what exactly what they, they told you to do, they, they would have, they would have happily told him to do the exact opposite of everything he did do. So he singled out groups of people. I, I mentioned Mexicans, but there are other other uh, other demographics too. Uh, he bragged about his money, which again, you think about it, especially in UK politics, you simply don't do that. You always pretend you come from much more humble origins than you really did. Use Twitter in a way that any campaign manager would tell you absolutely not to do and would say you have to be really thoughtful. So he basically broke every rule that any worthwhile campaign manager would, or or all the rules that any worthwhile campaign manager would tell you uh, not to do. And every time he broke the rules, I mean, you know about John McCain, he singled out John McCain for not being a war hero. Every time he committed a cardinal sin, like the plot of a ridiculous Hollywood film, his numbers went up. That's the thing. So when you're sort of seeing, I suppose, the, the hubris of, you know, Rachel Maddow or whoever going, well, you know, Nancy Pelosi going, well, this can't, this can't work. You know, you're really talking about, you know, how do you assess what's going to happen in an election? You look at history. And yeah. so it's like, well, this was something which, which you know, all the elections that I'd grown up on and, and, and where, elect, you know, where campaigns went off the rails um, and, th- like you said, things that you just simply cannot do. And this broke all those. So I suppose what you're looking at, I suppose in a sense, it's a film about kind of not laughable complacency, but but sort of what happens when received wisdom just totally breaks down. 
Well, what's funny is if you looked at the Republican field, of course, all the other Republicans were doing all the things that you should do, right? They they were making out they were the family man. They they were, you know, very invested in, in their communities. They were all saying a, a version of the same scripted message. And of course, as a result, they, they canceled each other out. And so if you had one person doing exactly the opposite of the other the other 16 candidates, by definition, you had something to look at and, and, and be fascinated by. The others just blurred away. And they were sensible people with serious track records in the Senate, former state governors. They were in, it was one of the most exciting Republican fields there had been for a long time. And therefore, the Republicans as, as a party were a serious challenge to Hillary Clinton. And nobody thought for one second this could possibly go Donald Trump's way. But as I say, they spent all day laughing at him and not challenging him or realizing what a threat he posed. And because he was so different, he devoured all this airtime that gave him, as some people have you know, ascribed vast dollar figures to the, the publicity he got from seeking attention. And that just killed the rest of the Republicans who really had nothing different seemingly to offer than anyone else in the field. I mean, this is an ob- objective documentary, um, and it's you know you're not you're you're doing it for your, for your you know for, for yourself. You're not doing it on the on behalf of of another group. But in the past, you have made sort of you know campaign videos for David Cameron for Boris Johnson. Even though you voted Remain, I saw uh, include ones for sort of vote Leave. That that being the the gig, um, were you able to you know looking back on these assess both Trump's and Hillary's campaign from a sort of professional? point of view how useful was that information was that knowledge that you had of what works in the normal scheme of things when you were analyzing particularly i suppose trump's well i suppose the first thing to say is you know if you get a bit lazy and think there's one playbook that you should always use to win any campaign by definition you start off on the wrong foot so you have to really think through at the beginning of a campaign what are my tactics going to be and you know you saw it with obama going back to obama he was very effective on the internet. This was before the smartphone existed, before any of social media, but nevertheless, he was raising serious amounts of money online. And, and, and we forget, Obama had massive rallies and huge gatherings, even you know, for, for a, a large part of his campaign, because they went at it in a different way. And, and I always say with any campaign, whether it's vote leave or whatever it may be in any country on the planet, at the end of the, your campaign, you have to be able to say, did I give myself the best chance of winning? And it's just as you would in a legal situation, you would say, did I ha- have the best counsel? Was I as prepared as I should have been? And part of that is being creative and it is being original and, and it is daring to do things differently. And that, in my opinion, favors a candidate if you're prepared to go away from the standard playbook. Which makes me think of what was happening on the Democratic side. Donald Trump, it, you, it's sort of impossible to sort of uh, to say how much Trump won the election, how much Hillary lost it. But you're sort of saying, obviously, that the that a more kind of innovative, fresh, inspiring form of campaigning uh, during Democratic primaries was coming from Bernie Sanders. Do you think, obviously, having thought so much about this election, as the meme goes, uh, Bernie would have won, or would Trump have found a sort of a different way um, to defeat him? Well, it's a great question. But, you know, Bernie Sanders was a massive problem for Hillary Clinton. You know, he beat her in places like Michigan, which she should absolutely have won. 
And having lost to Bernie Sanders, the Clinton campaign didn't put the measures in to recover that ground. It was in many of those northern states, as you know, just a given that it would go democratic. And in Wisconsin, for example, she didn't visit that state at all between the uh, Democratic Convention and Election Day. So Bernie Sanders was a massive problem for her. But and I think he was as surprised as anyone. But nevertheless, he came in with a new message, which, by the way, in America, saying things like free health care, free education is considered extremely radical. And that, again, gave people something to energize around. And in, in a funny way, Trump was doing giving a very similar message, but from the opposite end of the political spectrum. Both of these energies, therefore, attract voters in a way that, as I say, the Republican field that was just blurring into itself and Hillary Clinton, who was really offering not, she just could never really convincingly tell anyone why she wanted to be president. And that hurt her all the way to election day. She just couldn't connect with voters. And I mean, you've got a lot, you've got a lot of different voices in there and a lot of stuff that I agreed with, but there's a, a journalist from Time magazine who sort of makes this claim at one point that, you know, Hillary should have been 20 points ahead, which is presumably, I suppose, perhaps a caricature of received wisdom, you know, of of Trump just being a joke. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, in such a polarised country, is a lot of what happened simply a question of it's always close, it always comes down to a few states, the the country is is fairly cleanly divided between Democrats and Republicans, and that, that actually... The idea that, that 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 a bad enough candidate is going to produce a landslide is just not the way American politics works anymore. Well, I think you're I think you're right. I, I think the the Molly Ball point was that Hillary Clinton was being vaunted as this very experienced, highly knowledgeable candidate who had been around for every uh, forever, knew the game, knew all the nuances, had really thought her positions through. In other words, basically what she was saying was. She was ready. She was serious. Trump was a joke. And it, with that being the case, she should have just absolutely wiped the floor with him, but didn't. And actually, we, we know what happened. But I, I think it was really in that <clears throat> the point you're raising was there was just such uh, a contrast in seriousness between the two people of one person who'd spent her entire life preparing to lead and one person who, frankly, was just, you know, rolling the dice and see, seeing what happened and having a bit of fun. But in a sense, that sort of obscures the, the the underlying realities of this divided country, and that you know that that obviously Trump, a lot of Trump's votes were just Republican votes. That's true, but also there were there was an interesting phenomenon up in Wisconsin where we found a town which had voted at Obama, Obama, Trump. And if you look at the value proposition of you know I I, I don't like <laughs> my house or I don't like my car or I don't like something about my life. Generally speaking, change is your friend, right? So you, you, the logical thing is that you change if you don't like the way things are. So Trump was, you know, every every campaign people say they're the change candidate. I mean, Trump was certainly offering change. And I think a lot of people, as with Brexit, were very tired of the establishment. They were very tired of what they saw as the political class. And along comes this person saying he's going to drain the swamp and change everything. It's quite a compelling proposition if you don't think your fortunes are are that great. And so as as well as a lot of Republicans, Trump was able to bring in people from other other constituencies. uh, And, you know, he had this technique where he could say, you know, if you don't like immigration, I've got a message for you. If you're uh, not happy, you've got a pro-life position, I've got a message for you. Uh, If you don't like taxation, I've got a message for you. And if you hate Washington, I've certainly got a message for you. 
And so he had this ability to drag in all kinds of people who, frankly, were going to take a deep breath and say, I think the guy's kind of gross, but on the issue that I really care about, he is saying what I want to hear. So on that basis, I'm going to vote for him. Because now, of course, we've got the lens of the 2020 election. Uh, to read this one through. And part of Trump's success in 2016 was down to people believing, you know, his promises that he would drain the swamp of corruption, improve the lives of these neglected um, of rural or post-industrial communities. But he did neither of those things and didn't seem particularly interested in doing either of those things. And, and, and when it came to corruption, seemed interested in doing doing the opposite. And yet even more people voted for him in 2020 obviously fewer than voted for biden but just you know in the terms of the kind of the the numbers so does that suggest that those issues that seemed quite important in 2016 actually were quite disposable and they they weren't really the driver i think it's a great question and and you know obviously trump didn't drain the swamp because the first thing he did was put his daughter and son-in-law straight into the white house so you know he wasn't exactly going to the open market of ideas i think the 2020 election is different in one sense the way i've explained it to people is that basically people were voting for or against trump biden was sitting in his basement in delaware not going around the country not traveling at all So uh, I really don't think he energized anyone or excited anyone. I think Trump just had this, had got the country into such a a frenzy that either you hated him so much that you had to vote, obviously not for him. And if you loved him, then you had to vote because you couldn't bear the idea of, of the Democrats coming back. But I mean, I do think 2020 was frankly all about Trump. And of course, we're in a global pandemic which changed everything in terms of i say you know there's another election where all bets were off in terms of the playbook you had to think very differently in in 2020 but in the end it was a trump election but it turns out there were more people motivated to hate him than love him so he lost even though he got a bigger share of the vote than he did in 2016 so what do you think then is sort of the core to his appeal if it's not actually delivering on promises if it's not really changing things um substantially in a way that that, that that improves people's lives if you set aside the fact the economy overall was doing rather well it wasn't like the economy was sort of rebalanced to help people you know who'd lost their job in the factory or whatever so if it wasn't tangible delivering sort of tangible achievements and and, and fulfilling promises what was it was it what was i suppose was the appeal more emotional and abstract i'll give you an even more shallow answer i think frankly trump is entertaining and this is an age where people have very short attention spans they're all staring at devices all day long and trump says and does things no one can quite believe and he's sitting in the white house saying and doing them and even the most erudite individual finds it hard not to comment about him as an individual rather than him as a politician and the policies or, you know, he's enacting or the results he's delivering. And I'm afraid to say, I think, and again, this is in our conclusion of the film, has he changed the system forever? Are we really that shallow and ridiculous? Well, I assert that in 2016, that's exactly what happened. And I thought, you remember, there's all that talk of, will he become more presidential once he wins? Well, obviously he didn't. 
And he found that formula worked of nonstop attention seeking. He knew the value of the stunts with going to visit King, um, you know, um, King John Un and so forth. And he was very aware of the visuals in a way that I think most politicians are not. And he knows how to entertain. He knows how to provoke. And he knew and knows, and maybe we'll talk about the future in a minute, but people talking about him is his currency. And for all that a lot of us would like to think we know better and we can look beyond that, it's very, very hard not to, it's very, very hard to ignore when the, the media nonstop, all they talk about is him, his behavior, his erratic nature, and this idea that what's he going to do next? I mean, he, you know, every television show ends with a Jeopardy moment, and that is how he communicates. There's always this cliffhanger about what is around the corner that we don't quite ad- admit we're fascinated by. And I think there's, I suppose there are some things that, that uh, because you are trying to kind of cr- give a fairly balanced account, and there are some things that I um, felt that, that, that were sort of not as prominent as they might be, whether the politics of white resentment or his chronic dishonesty, allegations of sexual assault, beyond the access Hollywood take, but actual allegations of assault. You know, the, the, the right-wing disinformation machine from Fox News through to, you know, Facebook groups, and that there are... There are other kind of, I suppose, angles um, that, that, that are not explored as thoroughly. Why, why is that? Was that partly a kind of reaction to the fact that, that I suppose so many people hate Trump and that you think, well, what people can get, you know, people can get that elsewhere or? Well, yeah, aside from having a 10 hour box set, <laughs> the problem is, you know, when 90 minutes, you really have to pick your battles. And I do, I would slightly counter that I think we did acknowledge most of those headings, but obviously delving into each of them is, is not a, a brief conversation. Mm. Um, I, I don't disagree with anything you've just, just raised, but I think we acknowledge it and we absolutely recognize it was a factor at play. But as you know, with all elections, it's not really about, keeping your Fox News constituents on side because they live there. It's about moving those little populations in the centre, left or right, which, as you said earlier, is what wins you an election. Um, And I think that's what we Mm. looked at more, is how he was able to get people, you know, we, we, we literally ask in the film, is it only stupid people that vote for Trump? Well, clearly it isn't because if he says he's going, if you're very rich and he says he's going to put your taxes down, you might not tell all your friends at dinner parties, but I know anecdotally and for a fact, having interviewed a lot of people that many who would not want to be thought of as a Trump voter absolutely voted for him because he, they thought their taxes would go down, for example, even if they found it a rather grubby concept, the idea of voting for him, the, that mattered more to them than, going for Hillary Clinton, who they thought would be a more expensive prospect, literally on their own private bank balance. And, you know, you finished this film, obviously, before the last election. Most people are going to see it, uh, you know, this was a wide uh, online release now. Did you think, you know, going up to to November, you know, this is going to land very differently depending on the result, that I could watch it I have to say that I watched it. Had finished watching it last night. I did actually have a nightmare about Trump, which is very <laughs> bizarre. Um, but that I feel like I would have found that a much harder watch if Trump was, you know, just getting into his second term now, and there was a sort of sense of like, 
oh, you know, at least he's gone. Were you, were you sort of thinking like this is, you know, how this election goes, among other things, is going to sort of affect the reception of this film? Yes, entirely. I mean, to be honest, we locked it in time between the June 15 announcement and the election day in 2016. So that w- really what happened after that wouldn't shape or affect the, the film. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, also, the pa- to be totally candid, the pandemic changed everything in the film business and all our plans, you know, went down the drain as cinemas have been shut for, you know, 12, almost 12 months and so on. So, you know, it, we, we would have brought it out sooner. But I will just say, not having been found guilty in the impeachment trial, um, Trump is now eligible to, to run for the presidency in 2024. And I think that's really worth considering because this film shows how he could win again. You know, all things, who knows what will happen to Joe Biden, but, you know, he's not at the peak of fitness. There's plenty of scope for things to go wrong just in terms of, you know, his, his own stamina and, Trump could lurk around as the de facto leader of the opposition, although they don't have that that that's, that office, obviously, in America, in American politics. But I've no doubt he will lurk around hinting that he may run again in 24, even though it's very unlikely that he will. Uh, if he were to behave like that, I think this film would you know, be a really useful cautionary tale of how he could find himself, you know, going up in the polls and whatever else um, if people are not particularly thrilled with Joe Biden's performance. At the moment, lots of Republicans are kind of desperate uh, to do what Trump did. And you can see them sort of uh, putting themselves forward. People like you know, Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton and Matt Gates and so on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, like you said, you're showing a perfect storm. You've got his, his celebrity, the initial inability to take him seriously, this chaotic field of Republican candidates where there were just, you know, just too many people, they sort of cancelled out the the anti-Trump vote, a complacent and historically sort of divisive opponent. I think one of your interviews points out that, you know, no presidential cam- candidate has been in the public eye as long as Hillary Clinton had been. Um, so there's all these different factors. So do you think there can be such a thing as another Trump? If, if indeed it's not Trump himself, you know, well, as you say, the, well, the current uh, the current model is still lurking around and very dangerous. And you've just seen from the the events last week of the impeachment that, that there is, in the absence of another candidate in the Republican Party, people are still looking towards Trump, and it's going to take a huge character. But you know, you will remember a couple of years ago. There was ludicrous conversation about well, the way to beat Trump might be to get Oprah Winfrey to 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 to, to run against him, um, and you know I, I hope that this idea that you have to be a celebrity or, or fame is your overarching qualification to be the leader of any nation could be swept away pretty quickly. But obviously, it was a big part of the consideration for our current prime minister. You know, brand recognition is a hell of an asset in, a, in an election campaign versus being the person, which one is he again? I don't quite, oh, oh yeah, yeah, it's never a selling point. So, I mean, this is a conversation about populism fundamentally. I don't think in the, I, well, there isn't anyone, and we would know who that person is by now if there were a character of the stature, grand, the size of Donald Trump in the Republican field, there isn't. And so 2024 is going to be an extraordinary election. I have no doubt about it. Well, um, yes, extraordinary. Could go either, could go either way. Good, extraordinary, bad, extraordinary. You mentioned Johnson there. 
uh and you we had you know the thing i mentioned you did you did um some, some videos for him when he was a london mayor uh, so i don't know how much uh you know actual contact you've had with the man himself how trumpian uh do you think johnson is um i have a lot of contact with boris johnson because i filmed his very first uh videos launching his bid for the mayoralty of london when frankly he could, didn't really know why he was running and couldn't answer the question on on top of primrose hill it took about 20 takes to get an answer <laughs> uh, and i think the one thing he knows very well is that branding is everything and the studied scruffy hair the whole routine um is not it's not accidental at all it's totally contrived and there is a you know in a in a field of tories he stands out and he recognized i'm sure far before he entered politics that being recognized brand recognition is one of the great assets um you can never have as a politician and he's worked very hard at it so you think that's the most sort of trumpian quality be more than a sort of more than a kind of populist politics it, it, it's really that kind of uh that self-marketing uh, i think self-marketing is is a massive part of it i think reading the mood of the electorate you know obviously he he was on the right side uh, in in the vote leave campaign he you know he placed his chips on the exit side of the table and and did well as a consequence yeah and i think one thing you know i've always said a trump rally is basically a live focus group where trump is throwing out ideas and statements and jokes and he gets an instant reaction from the audience and the ones that last you know just like a stand-up comic does they 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 stay in the in the, in his handbook and the ones that fall flat he discards and i think boris johnson has a very similar sense of the electorate he knows what what interests and motivates voters and and keeps to that message and has been effective at doing so brilliant thanks for joining me james fletcher Thanks very much, Tori. And thanks to you for listening. The Accidental President is available on all digital platforms. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. 